our world is deeply depraved. And that sounds rough, but if we're honest, we all have to admit that it's true. The daily news headlines are filled with examples of the depravity of man. It could be CEOs stealing the retirement of the employees. It could be stories of cruel rulers in other nations. It could be stories of one person murdering or torturing another. Regardless of the circumstances behind the story, it's the same problem in the story, and that is the depravity of man. Humanity has always recognized the problem of evil in the world and has taken various steps to try to fix it. Some believe if they could get away from society, they could create a utopian place that would be untouched by evil. Yet man's depravity always follows man, so evil followed with him. Others have tried to solve the problem of evil through politics and legislation. If they can just get the right leaders in the right places at the right times and pass the right laws, then that would solve all of the problems of evil in our society. But man's depravity caused leaders to abuse the system. It caused leaders to um, kind of game it for their own sake. It caused them to abuse their power for their own good and for their own gain and to the hurt of others. Man's solutions for depravity have always failed. Man's solutions for depravity will always fail. So we have to wonder why. Why do human solutions to man's depravity always fail? It's because the gospel, not human solutions, is the only thing in the world that has the power to overcome man's depravity. This is why the gospel must stay central to everything the church does. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18. That's page 870 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. The Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, The weakness of God is stronger than men. The title of the message this morning is The Power of the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today and we praise you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We thank you for the opportunity to gather, to study your word, to worship you in song. Lord, just what a great day this has been and we thank you for it. Father, we ask you to open our hearts to your word at this time. Lord, help us to learn about the importance and the power of your gospel. Let us be sure that it is transforming our lives. Help us, God, to go out into a lost and a dying world and and boldly engage the world with the mighty power of the message of Jesus Christ. 
Father, today, help us to lay aside the cares of life and any other distractions that we may have brought in and be fully focused upon you. Let your Holy Spirit begin now to soften our hearts so that they can be the good ground and the seed of the gospel can sink deep into our hearts and bring change and transformation where it's needed. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech and help me to speak your word and your ways for your glory. Help what happens here today to make a difference in how we live tomorrow. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Since the division in Corinth was pretty severe, Paul is trying to call them back to that which is of utmost importance. He wants them to understand what matters the most. And what matters the most isn't which preacher they like or anything else. What matters the most is the message about Jesus Christ. And as he called them back to understand the message that the the gospel is what the church must be unified around, he then launches into a fairly long explanation of the power of the gospel in the passage that we're looking at today. And as you read through this, you notice that there is a contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, the power of the world and the power of God. And Paul's thrust really is that that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. In fact, he he highlights this by saying that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. He, He says that the power of God is greater than the power of man and highlights this by saying that the weakness of God is greater than the power of man. And the idea there is that the that God at his weakest, whatever that might be, is greater greater than anything man could muster. That God's wisdom, that you know, as foolish as it might be at times it seems, it is still greater than anything man can come up with. And in Paul's explanation here, the wisdom of God is seen in the gospel. The power of God is seen in the gospel. So the, the central truth I want you to understand today is this. The gospel exposes me to the power of God. And I guess I could have said the gospel exposes me to the wisdom and the power of God. Because the gospel is really what it's all about. It is central to everything God is going to do in the world. And every time we study the gospel, every time we hear the gospel, we are being exposed to the wisdom and to the power of God. So the question is, how does the gospel expose us? To the power of God. And Paul shows us three ways that it does in this passage. And the first is, the gospel has the power to reveal my nature. The gospel has the power to reveal my nature. How we think about the gospel. Our view of the gospel. It says a lot about our spiritual condition. Paul says in in verse verse 18, The message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the gospel, when it's preached, it divides everyone who hears it into one of two groups. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. So in this room right now, every one of us is either in the process of being saved or we are perishing. Now, perishing, it means just what it sounds like. It means to be separated from God, to headed toward utter uh, utter destruction. So how do we know? How do I know whether I'm in the group that's being saved or I'm in the group that's perishing? Well, Paul says the way that we know is what we think of about the gospel. When I hear the gospel and I think that's, that's nonsense, I don't need that. That's not for me. 
That's stupid to believe something like that. The person who views the gospel in that way, they are perishing. The person who hears the gospel and says, that is the power of God that has saved me. That is the person that is being saved. How we view the gospel, how we understand the importance of the gospel testifies to which group we're in. Now, Paul later in verses 22 and 23, he he expands on the idea of how the gospel divides and how the gospel brings people uh, aware, kind of makes them aware of their their condition. And he does this by primarily focusing on those who are perishing. And he says the Jews requested a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now, the Jews, the Jews wanted a sign that the gospel was really the message of God. Because for them, it was all really hard to understand and accept. They expected a Messiah to come, but they had an idea of what he would be like when he came. He would come and he would conquer. He would cast the Romans off and set up an empire in Jerusalem and they would be exalted and and they would kind of rule the world at his right hand. Uh, and, And that's really not what Jesus did. Jesus came and he was born in a in a humble way. And, and while he lived a, a perfect life and he did miracles and he taught things, the miracles that he did weren't the kind that they expected. His miracles didn't cast off Roman oppressors. Instead, they healed the lepers. His, his miracles didn't exalt the nation of Israel. Instead, they lifted up the poor. Right? Jesus is teaching. It went against the grain of what the, the Pharisees taught for the day. He, he taught that, that all people, no matter how far away from God they had drifted, they could come back to God and they could have a real relationship with God. He taught that in heaven, the angels rejoiced when tax collectors and prostitutes turned back to God. That went against everything that they said and they understood. On top of that, Jesus died. And he died badly. Jesus died on a cross. And according to the book of Deuteronomy, anyone who dies hanging on a tree has been cursed by God. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, he was he was suffering the the punishment of God kind of in their minds. And to make it even more difficult, Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God and who was a part of it. It was not consistent with their understanding. Our Sunday school class this morning talked about Jesus visiting with Nicodemus and saying to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Which went against the Jewish mindset. In the Jewish mindset, you were a Jew. You were a part of the kingdom of God. In the Jewish mindset, you you earned righteousness by the deeds that you did. You you were circumcised on the eighth day. You kept the law. You tithed a part of your income. You offered the right sacrifice at the right time. You took part in the right holy days on the right days. And all of these things, you earned righteousness. And in their mind, the Pharisees were the, they were the epitome of righteousness because they did all of these things. Then Jesus came and he taught that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Being a Jew isn't good enough. And you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Right? And, and they had to have his righteousness rather than their own. So for them to, to understand, to, to accept the idea, the Messiah came and basically said, My death is your fault. 
And if you want to be saved, if you want to be righteous, you have to abandon your own righteousness. You have to abandon your own quest to be good enough on your own and just trust in me. That was, as Paul says in verse 23, a stumbling block for them. Now, the Greeks were different, though. They had a different reason for rejecting the gospel. For them, they were all about wisdom. The Greeks spent all the time seeking after some new thing, some new knowledge. Now, wisdom is generally a good thing, but the wisdom of the Greeks was a godless wisdom. It was a wisdom that that didn't take the idea of God into consideration. In their wisdom, God, if there was a God or, or the many gods that they believed in, they were not concerned with people. They certainly weren't concerned enough with people to come down to earth and to do something to save them from the wrath to come. I mean, if you've ever read Greek mythology, you know the Greek gods weren't particularly noble. They weren't particularly caring or loving about the people. The people were kind of like chess pieces, pawns in the game that they were playing. A god that cared enough to come down and get involved in human affairs. That just didn't make sense. On top of that, the Greeks... They were really pleasure-oriented. I mean, the Greek culture was all about excess. The Greek culture was all about excess in pleasures. So the idea that there could be something you do that feels good, that you enjoy, and yet that could condemn you? No. There's just no way. There's no way. There's no way a God cares about my pleasure Or cares about my life enough to say you can't do this that brings you pleasure because I say it's wrong. It just didn't make sense. Also, the idea of the resurrection was a hard thing for the Jews to accept or the Greeks to accept. The Greeks, they saw the body in some ways as a a prison and death freed the soul from the prison. And the idea of a resurrection coming back to the body, well, that was who would want that? Besides the fact, it just doesn't seem that that happens. People die and they don't come back. The idea that a resurrection could happen, it's ridiculous. The idea that a resurrection, anybody would want that, it's crazy talk. So to them, it was foolishness. So there they are, they're they're perishing. And they see the gospel as a stumbling block, as an offense. They see the gospel as foolishness. We see these two same mindsets among the perishing In our day, in our day, there are those who see the gospel as a stumbling block because the gospel, while it does testify of the love of God, the gospel says a lot of a lot about us as well. The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So think about what that means to me. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That must mean that my sins well, they're real, number one. I mean, that means that, that my sins are, are real, that I've really sinned. And I've really done something bad and wrong, so bad that God holds it against me. Well, the modern mind doesn't want to believe that God is anything but just, I'm okay, you're okay. But the modern mind doesn't want to accept the idea that there is a way that we can live that is offensive to a holy and an almighty God. Well, the cross also testifies the fact that Jesus, he, he died for my sins. There is, a, there is a penalty for sins. It means I'll be held accountable for the things that I've done. And we live in a world where nothing is ever 
anyone's fault. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter how you act. There is a reason for it that is not your fault. And you cannot be held accountable for your actions, regardless of what those actions are. So the idea that that God will hold me accountable for my actions, that, that is offensive to the modern mind. But not only will God hold me accountable, but the idea that that God holds me accountable and He holds me to the same standard that He holds you to. And it's obvious I'm special. It's obvious I should be held to a different standard than you are. But I mean, and that's just kind of the, the mindset of the world. I can prove it. If you're driving down Sunset Lane and somebody flies past you going 50 miles an hour, what do you think? I hope a police officer pulls that person over. They're crazy. But if I'm flying down Sunset Lane and the police officer pulls me over, what do I think? Aren't there real crimes to deal with somewhere? Right? We think we should be held to a different standard than everybody else should be. And the gospel says there is one standard. It is God's standard. And he holds each and every one of us to the exact same standard. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. Level playing field. That's offensive. It's offensive to the modern mind. The gospel also declares that Jesus' death on the cross is the only hope we have. And what that means to me is I can't fix myself. I can't earn my righteousness. I, I can't do more good deeds than bad deeds and God say, welcome in. I, I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can't undo what I've done. I am dependent on another to save me, to fix me, and to make me righteous. I'm, and this is going to be hard for many, I'm not good enough on my own. Well, that pride of man just is crushed under that weight sometimes. We're good enough because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. Well, that... Modern man just cannot, cannot deal with that. That is hard on our, our ego. It's hard on the way that we think. And we see this mindset, I think, a lot in, in the gospel. This way it becomes, becomes an offense, a stumbling block. And when I think about this, I think about several years ago when The Passion of the Christ came out. Right? Mel Gibson's movie, if you remember, there was a lot of protests about it, about it being too violent, too explicit, too, too gory. But the people that, that opposed the violence of the passion of the Christ, they thought Texas Chainsaw Massacre was, was good viewing. They, they thought Saw was just a great movie. But the gore and the violence wasn't the issue. It was what it meant, what it was doing. It was the cross and the gospel that was declared that was offensive to the people. We also have Greeks in our day that find the gospel to be foolish. The idea that, that, that God, I mean, if there is a God, would care about the way that we live. I mean, really? 
I mean, that, that I can live in a way that is offensive to Him. Why would God, if there is a God, why would my lifestyle matter to Him? How could God, if there is a God, expect me to live under some old-fashioned, outdated, puritanical moral system? There's just no way. And then, I mean, come on. God took on human flesh and died on the cross for my sins? Stop it. Stop it. How could one person dying on the cross pay the penalty for all the sins of the world? That doesn't even make sense if that something like that is possible. You'd have to have a frontal lobotomy to even entertain ideas. Those things are true. I think of Bill Maher when I think of this. Bill Maher is a television host and he, he doesn't like Christianity, to put it mildly. If you watch him, there are two things that become evident in his view of Christianity. It's stupid. And if you believe it, you're stupid too. In fact, he has suggested that those who believe the gospel probably have a mental illness for embracing such. He, he absolutely despises Christianity. And when the gospel is preached, when the gospel is proclaimed, people are divided into those groups. There is the group that says the gospel is the power of God for my salvation. They rejoice, they hope, and they magnify that. And then there are those who say, no way. No way my sins are that bad. No way I'm going to be held accountable. No way. That makes me mad that you would even declare something like that to be true. And there are those who say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And the power of God is flowing through the gospel to reveal the nature of people. It it cuts through the fluff It cuts through our pretense. It cuts through all of the things that we want to say and have to pretend like is right. And it gets right to our hearts because no matter what we tell others in our hearts, we either think the gospel is great or we think the gospel is stupid. We think the gospel is the hope of our salvation or we think the gospel is offensive to the core of my being. And my attitude towards the gospel is, It testifies to my spiritual condition. It testifies to whether or not I'm saved or whether or not I'm perishing. And every one of us this morning is either being saved or perishing. And our attitude towards the gospel testifies about that. The second way the gospel reveals the power of God, we're exposed to it, is the gospel has the power to humble me. The gospel has the power to humble me. As humans, we are, we are a proud lot. We think a lot of ourselves. We think a lot of our ideas. We think a lot of our wisdom. And the gospel has the power to kind of crush all of that. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now, Isaiah 29, 14 is what that's quoting. And Isaiah 
is God speaking to his people that he is about to punish for their sins. And what's going on at this particular time is there is a nation coming to fight against Israel. And they are coming to conquer them if they do not repent and seek the Lord for forgiveness. And Israel is aware of what God has said they need to do. But Israel is not willing to do that. And so what they do is they send to Egypt. And they make an alliance with the people of Egypt to send an army to come and protect them. Because in in their mind, human wisdom without God, it makes sense. What makes more sense from a human perspective to prepare for battle? Pray. Go find a bigger army to protect you. In their mind, they were going to go find a bigger army to protect them, despite the fact that God had said all they need to do is pray to him and he would protect them. So their their mind, they're like, great, we've got it figured out. We're protecting ourselves. We've thought of the way we've got a way around this. And God says to them, I'm going to crush that. Your wisdom is going to prove to be foolish once I get through. I'm going to show you the armies of Egypt cannot protect you. Your human solutions to your problems cannot fix it. If you think about it, we're not... We're not just a lot different than the Israelites. We, we look at our culture, we look at our world, and we see, and we look at our lives. And we realize there are problems. There are things that aren't as they should be. And so we come up with ways to fix it. We, we try to find an avenue that, that fixes it without God. Right? We, and I don't want to... Have to, I mean, we want to say things like climate change causes terrorists. Uh, we, we want to say that there wouldn't be terrorists if they just had jobs. We say things like the big problem in the world is, is not the nature of man depraved, but people just aren't educated. If we can get more people educated, we can educate evil out of the world. We come up with all of these human solutions to deep down problems. And in the end, they're, they're all foolish. They won't fix it. We have to have something beyond ourselves to take care of the problems that we are facing. Right? Human wisdom fails to fix the problem is that because human wisdom has no answer to the problem of sin. Because no matter where you go, you find people that are educated and they're wicked. You find people that have enough and they're, they're wealthy and they're wicked. You find wickedness in poverty. You find wickedness in ignorance. You find wickedness in every area of human life. Human, human answers to the problems of our world cannot fix them because they do not have an answer for sin. So what is the answer for sin? What is the answer for these things? The answer is the gospel. The gospel alone has the answer for the sin in the world. The gospel alone can fix the depravity of man that we see. And this is difficult. 
for us to accept. Paul says in verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world at the, the wisdom of this world? It is shown to be foolish in the light of the wisdom and the power of God. He further explains in verse 21 that since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom does not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Man's dependence on his own wisdom has always left him at a place where he cannot and will not know God. Before a man can ever know God, and deal with the problem of sin, that person must be humbled by the gospel. The Holy Spirit works to humble us. But the Holy Spirit shows us our sin. The Holy Spirit is what reveals to us that our sin is serious. And indeed, we are condemned before a holy God. And when we embrace that, that humbling, the Holy Spirit then leads us to cry out to Jesus for salvation. But without that, that humbling, there is, there is no salvation. The proud person will never experience the grace of God. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me show you a great example of this. Turn to Luke Chapter 18, it's page 800 in your pew Bibles. The opposite of being humbled by the gospel is having pride that comes from man's wisdom. Man's wisdom causes us to be self-righteous and thus prevents us from being truly righteous. Man's wisdom causes us to think that we are good enough and so we never acknowledge our need for the righteousness of Christ. Man's wisdom causes us to think we can or we have earned our salvation so we never humbly ask God for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. In order to kind of demonstrate this truth, Jesus tells a story. Look at verse 9. And he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And in this passage, Jesus is going to contrast two different kinds of people. And what he's doing is he is showing the difference between humility and pride as it relates to the gospel. It shows that only those who have been humbled by the gospel can truly be saved, that those who are proud and trust in man's wisdom, they always miss out on what God has for them. Now, in verse 12, there's a tax collector. And tax collectors, they were bad guys. Tax collectors were Jews that worked for an oppressive Roman government, and they, they oppressed their own people. Right? I think I've told before, but if I was a tax collector and Michael Babb owed $50, if I could press him for $150, I got to keep what above and beyond what Rome expected from him. And, and if he could complain to Rome, but they didn't care. Rome could care less what I did to get the money above. As long as I paid them what was owed. And in order to, to make sure that, that Michael would pay and not try to rough me up, I would have three or four big armed security guards that were enough to, to kind of intimidate him into paying. Right? And so just imagine how you would feel. Canada invaded and conquered America. 
right? And, and Scott was working for the Canadians and singing Justin Bieber songs and, and trying to oppress us to get their taxes, right? How, how much would we like him? Not much. That's kind of the way they felt about tax collectors. And yet this tax collector we see goes into the temple and he is he's humbled. Look at what he says. Standing afar off, right? He's not even going up to the closest place. He's, if, if where they could come up to pray was here, he's not going all the way. He's stopping afar off. And he doesn't so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. So he's not praying like this. He's bowed in, in shame. And he says he beats his breath saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, just everything about that is a is a humble response. Be merciful. He's not saying I deserve anything from you, God. Give me don't give me what I do deserve. Give me something else. He's acknowledging the fact that he's a sinner. He doesn't try to excuse it. Dad was not home and, and mom was not as attentive and loving. And she kind of thought more of my big brother than me. Man, he, he's no excuses. It's just God be merciful. It's all my fault. That is his humble plea to God. Now contrast this with that of the Pharisee in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed. And I like this thus with himself. Right. So the Pharisee. It's really not even about connecting with God for him. And I don't know that the Bible brings this out, but in my mind, I see him being sure to pray loud enough that everyone else can hear. And here's what he says. I thank you that I'm not like other men. (laughs) God, I'm, I'm glad I'm better than most of the riffraff that come in here. It's not, I'm not an extortioner, not unjust, not an adulterer, right? And so his initial prayer is, is telling God how good he is. God, here's a list of sins I don't do. And, and then he, say, he gives a list of thing, good things that he does do. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I mean, he's not praying to God. He's Bragging to God. I mean, you can almost hear him saying, God, aren't you glad I'm on your team? And then what might be the ultimate act of self-righteous arrogance. He points to the tax collector. I'm not like other men, adulterers, extortioners, unjust or even like that tax collector. He is full of himself, certain that he is good, certain that he is righteous. And yet look at what happens in verse 14. I I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the, the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Pride always keep me from God. And pride very often comes from human wisdom telling me how great I am. Because human wisdom, I mean, I don't think the, tax, or the, the Pharisee was lying. He probably wasn't an extortioner. 
He probably wasn't unjust. He probably wasn't an adulterer. He probably really did tithe and fast twice in a week. He really did do those things. And human wisdom said, look how great I am because of all that I have done. Human wisdom always leads us to exalt humans, particularly ourselves. And on our own, we we won't overcome that. Only the gospel has the power to to come in and, and knock us down to where we need to be so that we can see that in reality, we are all the tax collector. We are all sinners that need the mercy of God. And the gospel comes in and it the power of God to take a proud man and make him a humble man. To take a self-righteous man and make him a truly righteous man. To take one who believes in himself and enable him to believe in Jesus. One who trusts in his good deeds to trust in the cross. That's the gospel and only the gospel can do that. The gospel exposes us to the power of God because the gospel has the power to humble me as nothing else in the world can. And then finally, the gospel has the power to save me. If you look back in 1 Corinthians, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel, really the gospel alone, is what brings us to the place of salvation. Now look at what Paul says in verse 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Human wisdom will never lead us to Jesus Christ. Human philosophy will never lead us to a place where we trust in Him for our salvation. Only way that we can ever come to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and be saved by Jesus is through the message of the gospel. And that's the only thing going. Everything about our our spiritual life, everything about our salvation, everything about our eternity... It rises and falls on our connection to Jesus. And the only way that we will be connected to Jesus is when we believe the gospel. It is the only message that has the power to save us. We are exposed to the power of God every time the gospel is preached. Because in that moment, salvation becomes possible. In that moment, it makes it possible for an unbeliever to become a believer. For the lost to be found. For a person to be born again, to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Only the gospel has the power to do this. And this is why the gospel must always be central. Everything the church does. This is why the gospel is important and other things are not nearly as important. Paul was extraordinarily confident in the power of the gospel to save. And the reason for that, I believe, is that Paul had seen the power of the gospel to change and to transform Paul had preached the gospel and he had seen pagans become Christians, unbelievers become believers. 
Paul had seen the radical life change that happens when people believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think maybe, if nothing else, Paul could see it in his own life. Paul himself was a testimony of the change that faith in Jesus makes when you believe the gospel. So as people tried to shut him up, he couldn't because he knew what the gospel could do. When people tried to make him ashamed, they couldn't because he knew what the gospel could do. And and I, I wonder sometimes if maybe our lack of confidence in the gospel. Is it because we don't see that kind of life change in us? I mean... As you look at your life, do you see legitimate change that is because of Jesus? And to me, that's so important. Not, am I different because I have a different job? Am I different because I'm not single, but I'm married? Not because I'm married, but with children now. Life brings changes into our lives, but that's not necessarily gospel-centered change. Gospel change are things that we do only because of Jesus. Actions we take only because of Jesus. Ways we prioritize our life, react to stressors, go throughout our life. Things that we do just because of Jesus. What gospel changes do you see in your life? One way to think of it is like this. If if you didn't believe in Jesus at all, tomorrow you just said, I don't believe. Other than coming to church, what would change? I mean, if if very little would change outside of church, then there is a need for us to find out what's wrong. Because a process that's called being born again, being regenerated, being made into an entirely new creation, it necessitates legitimate changes in our lives, in our, our priorities, in our actions, in, in our reactions. Do we see those? And if we don't, why not? You know, the reality could be the reason we don't see changes is because we've never been born again. Jesus said that there will be some who stand before him on the last day. And they will say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. And he'll say, but and they'll say, but we did all of these things. And he'll say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I never knew you. See, if you've never been born again, if you have never personally repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ, that is where everything has to start. I mean, that is your decision that you must make and no one can make it for you. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. Repentance says, I've been wrong about sin. My sin is not okay. God is right. My sin is wrong. Repentance says, I've been wrong about my righteousness. I am not righteous. God is right. The only righteousness I have comes through Jesus. Repentance then leads me to call upon Jesus to save me. It necessarily leads me to make the decision to say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that changes everything. Not just our eternal destination, but our earthly lives. Now, friends, if that change is not there, be concerned. Be very concerned. Perhaps you have believed. And there have been changes, but they're not as much anymore. And that may mean that we have cooled 
in our relationship with Jesus. That we have begun to let things slide. Not, not even necessarily that we've gone into wicked sin. But we've just lost our first love for Jesus. We have forgotten the greatness of the gospel and the glory of the Savior that died for our sins. And if that's us, then we need today to spend some time asking Jesus to to revive our hearts, to restore our zeal for him, to give us a fresh vision of the greatness of the gospel and the Savior that it proclaims. Because I want my life to be a testimony to greatness, the Savior that died for me. I, I want to live a life that testifies Jesus is real. And I can't just be Stacy and live the way I want, the way I've always been, and do that. There have to be gospel-centered changes before people will see Christ in me. And it's the same for you. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.